If you've been with us for the last few months, I wonder if you just had the feeling of deja vu. If you've, been play, if you've been paying close attention, you've realized that this section we just read is eerily similar to what we've been studying over the last couple months. Just remember, okay, look back at the verses we just read, verses 1 to 10. We have Jesus in his compassion, miraculously feeding the multitude with the help of his disciples. Verse 10, you get an abrupt departure in a boat. Verses 11 to 13, we have Jesus engaged in a conflict with the Pharisees. In verses 14 to 21, we have a private conversation where the disciples uh, and Jesus have a conversation and Jesus has to reprove them for their lack of understanding. Any of this sound familiar? If you were to go back to Mark chapter 6, maybe just take a look if you have your Bible open. And you look at verse 30. And you would see in verse 30 to 34 that Jesus, in his compassion, miraculously feeds the multitude with the help of his disciples. You would see in verse 45 that they depart abruptly in a boat. You would see in chapter 7, verses 1 to 16, that Jesus is engaged in a conflict with the Pharisees. You would see in verses 7 to 23 that Jesus then has a private conversation with his disciples and he has to reprove them for their lack of understanding. It's like part one and part two. It's almost as if they didn't get it the first time. In both sections, Jesus is revealing his compassion and his power. He's healing. He's demonstrating who he is. And it's almost as if the disciples are not quite getting it and they need it a second time. Both cycles, if you want to call them cycles, end with a healing. And after the healing, there's a declaration of who Jesus is. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, after the deaf mute, we talked about him last week, was healed, the crowds say, he does all things well. You remember that? Verse 37 of chapter 7. And after this cycle, he heals this blind man. And then, we didn't read it, but in verses 27 to 30, there's a new declaration of who Jesus is, a new understanding of who he is. And they say, you're the Christ. It's as if they're beginning to get it. And so many scholars see that blind man that we read about, where he's partially healed and then he's more completely healed. He, he sees but only blurry in the first healing, and then after that he can see more clearly. Many say this is meant to be an illustration. This really happened, but what Jesus is doing, he's illustrating for his disciples what they are like. They're, they're getting revealing revelations of who Jesus is, but they're not quite getting it. It's still blurry. And then Jesus is bringing them through more experiences and more teachings. And ah, it's becoming more clear. This morning, we encounter an example of Christ's patience, His teaching, His long-suffering, as He endures with these disciples to teach them who He is. Jesus is patient with them. And to help them come to a greater understanding of who He is, He needs to bring them through some of the same lessons He's already brought them through. And I wonder if God has had to do that with you. That Jesus, the ruler of our lives, right? God, the sovereign of the world who organizes all things for our good and His glory, He brings us through things. And often we think we learned the lesson. And we need to learn it again. He's patient like that. I remember uh, in seminary, uh, I had a Hebrew professor, Dr. Buznitz, perhaps the most patient man I've ever 
met. And he would have to be teaching a bunch of guys like me Hebrew. Dense we are. And so he would, several times at the beginning of the class, come in, and he would ask us, how are you guys doing understanding the material? How would you, you guys do on your homework? And we would stare at him. That's what we would do. We would just stare at him. That's all we had to say because it wasn't getting in. He would say, how would you do on your homework? And we would go, uh, I struggled. And he would, in all patience, and say, okay, let's review the material again. And he would take us again. Sometimes even, if, if God was looking down kindly upon us, he would cancel the quiz. <laughs> and he would review the material with us again and again, patiently. Why? So that we could understand the language. And here's the Savior with these 12 men who are not getting it. They're very dense. They're very slow to learn. It's taking a repeating of the material. And Jesus is saying, but I want to do this with you so that you understand who I am. He's very patient. Now you'll see and you read that Jesus will rebuke them. But he is doing so for their good to teach them. And so I want to draw out from this longer section three lessons that Jesus wanted to give to his disciples to review with them, to teach them, to help them understand who he is. Three lessons the Savior, the discipler, the mentor has for his disciples so that they might learn who he is. And I think that you are going to benefit from these three lessons because we need to hear them as well. Here's the first lesson we see in the first section. The disciples needed a lesson about the compassion and power of Jesus. They needed to see it again. And so in chapter 8, verse 1, they've been out in kind of Gentile territory where they're they're in the Decapolis. There's a lot of non-Jews, a lot of Greeks there. It says, In those days when a great crowd had gathered, another great crowd, this is like the other one, but not as big, and they had nothing to eat, He called His disciples to Him and said to them, so He sees this crowd. He recognizes their need. He doesn't want them to faint from hunger. He doesn't want them to go hungry. They've been there with Him for three days, the text says. And so He calls the disciples. It's like a huddle. All right, guys, come on. Let's huddle up. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. And He says to them, listen, I have compassion on the crowd. You see that there in verse 2? Jesus wants them to see again and see with freshness His heart. Jesus opens the door of His heart to His disciples and says, all right, come on in. I want you to see what's inside. And what's inside? Compassion. That I feel for these people. I grieve with them over their hunger. I want you to see, disciples, that I have compassion on the crowds. I don't want them to go hungry. I don't want them to fade away as they try to walk home. I want you, disciples, to know that I am compassionate toward these people. They needed to hear that. They needed to see how compassionate He was. The word compassion, we've encountered this word again and again through the Gospel, but it bears repeating that the word compassion is the same word used in other places to describe someone's guts. 
It's referring to the, the deep sense of ache that you might have when you see someone else suffering. It is to grieve with someone else's grief. It is to feel sorrow with someone else's sorrows. It is to see someone hungry and uh, maybe on the verge of fainting and then to feel it in your own body, their suffering. If you have ever felt the pain of someone else's pain, then you know a little bit about what this is like. And it's clear to us that Jesus cannot look upon a suffering crowd, a hungry crowd, without His very own guts, His very own compassion swelling up from within Him. He feels for these people. His desire is for their good. He feels deeply the pain and the suffering of those people around Him. And I want you to notice uh, that these people, who are they? These crowds. Are, are these people who have repented and followed Him? Are these people who have, uh, con, uh, have, have made Jesus their Lord and their King? The answer to that question is no. These people are much like the rest of the crowds that have been following Jesus around. That is to say that they have been following Jesus mainly because He can heal, because He can feed, because He does miracles. There is a spectacle that Jesus is putting on display. And lots of the people in the crowds are coming not because they want to worship the Lord, but rather they have a problem that they want Jesus to fix. So many people in the crowd here are just caught up in the hype. They just want to see some light show of miracles and healings and doing some dramatic displays of power. That's what all the crowds have been up to this point, and that's who the crowds are. They have not been there to worship Him. And yet, Christ, in His compassion, feeds them. He feeds people who don't quite know who He is. He feels for people who are not coming to Him in worship. This is how God is, by the way. You realize that God is this way? Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says that the Father, listen, is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. That the great ungrateful people in the world and the evil people of the world, God demonstrates kindness to them. And if you're not a Christian and you're gathering here with us this morning, we're so thankful that you're here. There's no place we'd rather have you be on a Sunday morning. And what profound reality I want you to hear and consider is this, that God has been so kind to you, even if you've been ungrateful, and even if you've been evil, that God has been kind to you, to care for you, to make the sun rise. He has given you numerous sunrises and sunsets. He's put food on your table. He's given you life and breath and you have not deserved any of it. We have not deserved anything from God. We cannot come to God with a list of things we've done and say, God, I have my list of all the good things I've done, all the deeds and all the merit. Here, God, I will give you this. Now pay me what I deserve. We cannot do that before God. He is holy. And all we have to offer Him are the filthy rags of our of our soiled righteous works. They are not true righteousness. And so, Jesus here in this demonstration, He is showing that He even shows compassion to those who do not love Him, those who do not worship Him. God is kind to those who are ungrateful. He is kind to those who reject Him. And I want you to know, if you're not a Christian this morning, that God offers you more than a roof over your head and food in your belly, that you have experienced those things, but also that He offers you a greater provision, a more permanent provision, 
that though you have sinned against Him, and though your sin is repugnant to the Father, that it is offensive, and because your sin has rendered you guilty and that you are deserving of judgment, that God, in His merciful nature, He provides for you provision to have your sins forgiven. He provides for you the gift of righteousness that will clothe you. He offers you a gift that you might receive it and come into a right relationship with God. He sent His Son, Jesus. And as you read through the rest of Mark, Jesus voluntarily, as we have already looked at, as we took communion, went to the cross to suffer for the sins of everyone who trusts in Him. He died in their place. He rose from the dead. He's alive right now. And He offers you the provision of the free forgiveness of your sins. Should you take it? Should you repent? Should you have it? It's yours. Debts will be paid. Sins will be forgiven. You'll be reconciled to God and the righteous judgment you deserve will no longer be falling upon you because Christ will have paid it for you. So He is compassionate. Can we not praise Jesus for being compassionate? And He demonstrates His compassion and kindness even to people who are not worshipers of Him. And how much more, church, those of us who know what He has done, Yes, He has given us the roof over our head. And He's given us bodies that we can come here and friendships and families and all kinds of joys that we can experience in this life. But can you not also remember that He has provided for you reconciliation? That we are children now of God. And that for all eternity we will enjoy the pure bliss of having all His blessings for our enjoyment. Not because we've deserved it, but because He is kind and gracious. He is compassionate. He is so overly compassionate, overflowing with kindness. And I might ask you, though, as we continue to look at this, that what would be compassion without power? Many of us are compassionate. But often our compassion runs into a brick wall because we're not able to do anything to help the person we feel bad about. But here, Jesus is not only compassionate, but he demonstrates his power. Look at verse 4. His disciples come to him and they say, how can we feed these people here in this desolate place? And Jesus responds. He says, how many loaves do you have? And here we go all over again. We get the loaves being brought to Jesus. We get the fish later. And there in that moment, Jesus does this amazing miracle where he begins feeding the people. He begins multiplying the loaves and the fish. And it says there that he feeds them until, in verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. They eat to their heart's content. They have baskets left over, overflowing provision, overflowing kindness, more than they could ever ask. In other words, Jesus not only has the compassion that he demonstrates to these needy people, but he also has the power to display his passion and to make good on this desire to feed these undeserving people. So there's two reasons really why Jesus does this. You see that? Reason number one is that he has compassion on the crowds. But remember, he also wants to teach his disciples about himself. He says, come in, gather around, huddle. Here we're going to go. Come on, huddle. I have compassion on the crowds. I want you to know that about me. I want you to know that about me, disciples. I have compassion. And here's the lesson for you, church. Here's the lesson for us this morning. That our Savior is really compassionate. You need to know that He really is compassionate and that He is also infinitely powerful. That He does these things so that His disciples might know and experience again that He is in fact compassionate. In all these lessons 
that we are encountering in Scripture, could we not also back out and think about our own lives and say, man, the Lord has been showing me again and again that He is compassionate, that He is sovereign, that He takes care of me. And so often we are quick to worry and quick to wonder how God might meet our needs. And He again, every morning, blesses us with new mercies, new kindnesses, Again and again, day after day, we don't deserve any of it, but He keeps on giving us blessings upon blessings. And if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, could you not look back at your life and point again and again to the provision of your Savior? Couldn't you? And couldn't you sit around with other people here and talk about the ways God has been kind to you and has given you again and again undeserved provision? He has taken care of you. You know that if He feeds the sparrow, if He clothes the flowers of the field, He's going to take care of you. The disciples needed another reminder of that. And so we look again this morning to our Savior. He is compassionate. He is powerful. The disciples needed to remember that. And so Jesus said, okay, here, look, I have compassion. I want to show you how I, in my compassion, I can feed those people, even people who do not deserve it. And so they needed that warning. They needed that reminder. They needed that lesson. Now here's a second lesson that the disciples needed. We find it in verse 11. They needed a lesson, this is number two, about the danger of unbelief. The danger of unbelief. He has this interaction with the Pharisees. Verse 11, they came to him, they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign. These Pharisees are probably the ones, uh, maybe a subgroup of the ones from chapter 7. Jesus has just eviscerated their false religion, and they think they're all heard about it, and they want to come talk to him. And so they, they actually, they're not really honestly trying to uh, determine whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. They, they actually just want to discredit him. That's what, the, that's what the Pharisees are doing. It says there in verse 11 that they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They wanted to test him. Uh, Jesus, show us something that proves you are, in fact, from heaven. Do you find that at all silly? Having just seen Jesus multiply food to thousands of people, making food out of thin air. Jesus has raised a girl from the dead. Jesus has been healing the masses. Jesus has been doing sign upon sign upon sign upon sign. And what's true about these Pharisees is that they actually could not deny that Jesus was demonstrating unheard of power. They knew that that was happening. But if you remember in chapter 3 of Mark, what did they say about that power? They said it's coming from Satan. So they couldn't deny the power itself. They could only deny the source of the power. So here they are again. They don't deny that Jesus is doing signs, but they're probably still thinking down in their minds. They're probably thinking, Jesus, yeah, I recognize you're doing all this, but prove to us that you're doing it with God's power. Prove to us that you're doing this with God's power, not, not the devil's power. And there were some rabbis around this time in the first century that taught that that, that, that Satan could imitate earthly signs, but heavenly signs Satan could not imitate. So the Pharisees are saying, show us a sign from heaven, then we'll know that you're from heaven. Now Jesus is not going to play their games. He's not going to play their games. Healing the multitudes, that's not going to be enough. Uh, uh, feeding thousands with a boy's lunch, that's not going to be enough. Casting out demons, that's not going to be enough. See, there's a kind of unbelief and you, you've known this person. I, I bet you've met this person. I don't know. Maybe you are this person. Where you don't 
entrust yourself to Jesus, and you do so because you keep saying there's not enough proof. Like if there were only enough proof, then I'd come to Christ. You give me an answer to this question. Give me an answer to this question. If you could help me overcome this obstacle, then I'll come to Jesus. And Jesus sees right through it. He knows it's pure, unadulterated unbelief. That's what the Pharisees were doing. This ask for more proof, more proof, more proof. It was never going to be enough proof. In John chapter 12, it says this, that verse 37, though Jesus had done many signs before them, the Pharisees, they still did not believe in him. In other words, he could do all the signs in the world and it wouldn't have broken their unbelief. In fact, if they were to be given the greatest sign of all, the resurrection of a man from the dead, they still wouldn't believe him. In fact, what happens in Matthew 28 after Jesus rises from the dead? Remember what the Pharisees do? They still won't believe him. Rather, they make up a lie that the body was stolen. Why? So they can be established in their unbelief. The problem was not that they didn't have enough evidence. They had all the evidence they needed. And I wonder if some of you have all the evidence you need to know that it's all real, it's all true. Jesus is who He said He is. And the problem is that you just haven't wanted to give yourself to Him, to entrust yourself to Him, to embrace Him as your Lord and your Master and your King. Why? Because maybe, like the Pharisees, what the Pharisees wanted was to rule their own lives. They wanted to have their own righteousness They wanted to have a semblance of authority and they wanted their system to put them at the top. And if Jesus undercut their religion, they would be nobodies and they didn't want to be nobodies. And the first step to becoming a Christian is this. You've got to recognize you're a nobody. You've got to understand you have nothing in your hands to merit anything from God. And in your humility, you ask Him for grace and mercy and He overflows with it for those who come in repentance. But if we come trying to have our lives established and to be powerful and to be dignified and to come in our own pride, we will never receive the grace of God. So that's what the Pharisees are doing. He doesn't give them a sign. He refuses to bow to their whims. He knows it's not evident, so he's not going to play their game. And rather, look what happens. They get into the boat, verse 13, with the, the, the disciples and Jesus get into the boat. Verse 14, there's a little note, and this will come into play here. They forgot to bring bread. They only got one loaf with them. Verse 15, now Jesus cautions them, and he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out. You can underline those words maybe in your Bible because they're really emphatic. Those words, watch out. I mean, this is the kind of thing you say when there's imminent danger. You're at a baseball game. There's a foul ball. Your friend's sitting there on his phone. The ball's flying straight to his head. What do you say? Watch out. It's, a, it's something. Hey, wake up. Something's happening. You don't look up. You're going to get smacked. This is the kind of language Jesus is using. Hey, wake up. Watch out. There's a problem here. He actually uses kind of two ways to emphasize. Watch out. Beware, he says, of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's such a big deal? What is the imminent danger? He describes it as leaven. Uh, Many of us don't know what leaven is. Some of you do. I had to study it up a little bit. What's leaven? Leaven is that stuff you put in the dough. You you mix it around. You knead the dough. And the leaven makes the dough rise. It makes the bread rise. Uh, It was something that in the Jewish mind and in the Gentile mind, both uh, kind of cultures had this idea that leaven was representative and symbolic of evil. 
that when leaven got into something, it infiltrated the whole thing in a subtle way, and it, 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 it was this evil influence. And so when Jesus is talking about this idea of watch out for leaven, he's speaking of watch out for the subtle influences of evil that can creep into your way of thinking that you might not even recognize. The evil of the Pharisees, the leaven even of Herod. Watch out for it. What, what does he mean? What is that leaven? What is this subtle evil influence that he's warning about? Well, it's actually interesting. The disciple or the, the Pharisees right here had just asked for a sign, right? Did they know that Jesus was doing miraculous things? Yeah, the Pharisees knew that. But they did not entrust themselves to Jesus. They recognized the signs, but they could not repent. They did not come to him. You know who else did that? Herod. He's mentioned here as well. If you go back to our section where we looked at how John the Baptist was killed, Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead because he was doing all these mighty things. So even Herod recognized there's something special about Jesus, there's something powerful about Jesus, but they did not entrust themselves to Jesus. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what Herod did. So what does it mean to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Here's what it means. Here's what Jesus is warning against. He's warning against this. Seeing the supernatural. Seeing the demonstration of God's power. Hearing the reality of His message. Listening to His teachings. Admitting that there's something powerful in it. And at the same time, never entrusting yourself to Him. You see it, you acknowledge it, you know it's there, but you never give yourself up to Him. This is what the disciples need to be warned of. He was warning them. And this is what we need to be warned of, church. Watch out for hearing God's message and seeing God work in the lives of people around you and recognizing that He's powerful, and even admitting and confessing that He is Lord without, in your heart of hearts, entrusting yourself to Him. Do you see what I mean? You know where the most dangerous place to be is Sunday in and Sunday out is in church where you're seeing the lives of people change and you're being ministered by Spirit-filled Christians and you're listening to the Word of God and you're getting God's message and you're seeing God's work and you're thumbs up agreeing with it all, but deep down in your heart of hearts, you're not entrusting yourself to Him. Your heart is still cold. Your heart is still distant. And your, your walk with Christ has turned into a good old-fashioned religion where you do the external things, you conform to the expectations of your church, and you show up and you nod your head, and deep down there's nothing changing inside you. Jesus needed to warn His disciples of that mindset. That was the mindset of the Pharisees. And listen, these disciples were with Him month after month and up to three years, and they were still hard-hearted, and they were still missing the point. And how much more suspect should we be of our own hearts? How easy would it be for us to come again and again and again and again and to think we're learning because we've heard a sermon, because we've read a book, because we saw someone else's life change. To think we know Christ because we're observing it happen in the lives of people around us. And we've gained more information and we know our theology And just like the Pharisee, our hearts are far from Christ. 
how dangerous it is to be. How subtle that influence is. It's so subtle that Jesus needed to warn His disciples and listen. The disciples need to hear it. And guess what? One of them didn't take that message to heart. He was exactly the kind of person Jesus is warned against here. Judas heard every sermon. He saw every miracle. He was there handing out the bread. You see that? Judas was there handing out the bread to these people. He was participating in the miracle itself and it did not touch him down in his heart. But by all accounts on the outside, everyone would have said, he's one of the twelve. He's one of the chosen. And in the end, he was lost. His heart was distant. And I guarantee these people show up to church every Sunday and I wonder if that might be you. And I just want to lovingly call you to heed the warning of Christ. Don't let this way of thinking where you're always, you want a little more from Jesus. You want another sign? You're saying to God, show me something, then I'll obey you. And you see it all and you hear it all and you know it all and at the end of the day, you haven't really touched, it never really touched your heart. How dangerous it is to sleep through church and I don't mean to actually sleep (laughs) the best of us will do that I mean the person who's awake in the flesh but in the spirit is drowsy I'm talking about the person whose eyes are open and your posture's upright and you're nodding along it looks very attentive but you will go home and apply none of this You'll go and turn on the TV or put, on your, put yourself on that couch or you will go on to the very next thing. And you will not consider any of the lessons that Christ has taught you. And so you're sleepy, you're drowsy, maybe even dead, spiritually speaking, to the realities of heaven and hell and everlasting life and everlasting torment. The glory of God and the supremacy of Christ and the wonders of the Gospel and the advance of the church, these things mean nothing to you. But you like them because it's part of the shell that you've put around yourself. And so Jesus warns them. The Puritans understood that this was a danger in the church, that the church needed to be roused. Uh, The church needs to be awakened to really consider these realities. And so one Puritan, Richard Baxter, preaching or teaching other pastors, he taught these preachers to preach like this. Listen to what he says. He says, Speak to your people as men that must be awakened either here or in hell. Isn't that true? That if we don't wake up to the Gospel now, if we don't wake up to the realities of Christ now, that we will wake up someday. And that day will be on the day of judgment when there is no hope left and no more chance. Have you wakened up to the glories of Christ now and seen your own sins in dire need of forgiveness, and your own guilt that needs to be washed away, and that you are no longer playing the game of Christianity, but you repent, and you come to Christ, and you say, Lord, you're my everything, you're my delight, you're my treasure, I'm not going to play the game anymore. You want a fast way to hell. Take the easy route of consumer Christianity, put on the veneer of the religion of Christianity, and never hear in your heart, never really see and understand Oh, you will hear with your ears and you'll see with your eyes, but your heart will be distant. Come to Christ from the core of who you are. And don't let this shell be all there is for you. 
Are you, church, are, are we sleepy, drowsy Christians going through the motions just like a Pharisee? Cast yourself at the feet of the merciful Savior. Give Him your heart and say, change it. Because I can't change myself. I need your life. Or perhaps you say, I need to be born again. And if you don't grant me grace, I will never change at all. And here's the third lesson. They needed to be rebuked for not having learned their lessons. Didn't they? They needed to be rebuked. This is comical. Look at verse 16. Right after Jesus warns them, this, this warning they should have taken to heart. I mean, they should have been sitting here discussing this warning. But it says that they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Then they started talking about whether there was enough food. Now, I give it to them. You've got 13 men in a boat, one loaf of bread. What are men going to talk about? I mean, they're going to talk about who gets the bread. They're going to start fighting over the bread. I, I, I understand what they're doing. But Jesus gives them this, this profound piece of advice that they should not act like Pharisees, but that they should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they start talking about the physical bread in the boat. They've missed the point. It's almost like you know, someone comes up to you and says, hey, don't count your chickens before they hatch. And you go, my chickens? What chi- Do I have chickens? I didn't know I had chickens. It's like they, they completely missed the point of the saying. Jesus gives them this metaphor, watch out for the leaven. And they go, oh, bread. Yeah, that's right. I'm hungry. Uh, we got one piece of bread. Who's, who's going to take the bread? Like, okay, let's start talking about who gets this slice and who gets that slice. And oh, I want the best slice. You know, they, they just start talking about the bread. And so Jesus needs to rebuke them. Why? Because they haven't learned their lesson. They're not getting it still. They, they haven't yet learned it. And Jesus, I, I think we have to read this, that he is, yes, he's rebuking them, but it is from a heart of love. He is tough and he is tender. At the same time, he's a lion and a lamb. He will not budge on his high standards for them, but he will come alongside and correct them in 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 the most loving way. And so he says here in verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, he asked them a, a series, eight questions, eight questions here. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? That's not what you should be discussing. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? I imagine the disciples all sheepishly looking at each other. Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? Seven. Do you not yet understand? Don't you get it? Haven't you learned from these instances again and again that I am compassionate and I am all-powerful and I can take care of you and you're going to be fine? Why do you talk about lacking bread? You lack nothing if I'm here in the boat with you. You have all your needs met if you know me and trust me. There are a time, there are times when a, 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 a student's failure to learn is the fault of the teacher. You've had that teacher, right? He, makes, he or she makes teaching harder, you know, or learning harder, I should say. You know, it's harder to learn if you have a bad teacher. This is not the fault of Jesus that they're not getting it. 
In fact, the text is making it clear that they are morally culpable. The disciples should have learned this by now, but they have failed to learn. Therefore, Jesus rebukes them. They have misunderstood. Why? Because they're hard-hearted. They have seen, but they have not seen. They have heard, but they're not hearing. And so Jesus needs to be a little tougher, and here He offers them questions. And the question that I think is meant to be ringing in our ears, there in verse 21, do you not yet understand? And it is the question I ask you this morning. Do you understand who Jesus is and what it means to have Him as your Savior? Do you understand, really, what kind of Savior loves you? Who He is and what He's like? Uh, do you you need to be rebuked to be remembering that you you don't need to be worried about the things that you're often worried about, right? Why? Because of who He is? Don't you understand that God has provided? That He has been patient? That He has been kind? That He's demonstrated His power? You got your income? Your bills are being paid? You've never had to skip a meal? You got your worst fears, but how often are they materialized? And yet week after week, month after what month, how often do we keep coming back to the same fears, the same worries, the same anxieties? It's almost as if God is not merciful. It's almost as if we believe that He's not all-powerful. Maybe we've begun to believe that Jesus may have really great intentions, just not enough power to help us. Or He has all the power in the world, He just doesn't care very much. But isn't it amazing that you and I are being shown here the heart of Christ where He says, not only am I compassionate but i'm omnipotent and i'm your savior i have come for you and i love you the disciples needed to remember that he was their lord and savior and they could trust him don't you understand and i think this morning what jesus would say to us do you not understand that every good gift has come from me do you not understand that you're here this morning because I've drawn you in. Don't you understand that I've been taking care of you even when you have been ungrateful, even when you have acted wickedly. It has been me all along the way that I've loved you and cared for you. And every ounce of pain and every time I've said no to that prayer request was ultimately for your good. Do you not understand, he would say. Do you not understand that I went to the cross for you? Do you not understand that I love you? Do you not understand that I wanted you? That's why I went. That's why I suffered. That I came to purchase you by my own shed blood on that cross. Do you not know that I'm your brother? That God is your Father? That you are secure? That you are loved? Don't you understand that I've already given my life for you? Don't you understand that I will not hesitate to graciously give you all that you need? Don't you get it? Church, we have to ask ourselves, do we have any idea what it is to be loved by this kind of Savior? To be the object of His love? To be the apple of His eye? Do we know what kind of security and joy that brings? That we are safe. That we are secure. We are as blessed as Christ Himself and our, the security of that bre- blessing is as permanent as God Himself is permanent. The only way we could ever lose our blessings would be if someone could un-God God. 
That will never happen. Christians, church this morning, you are eternally secure in the power and the compassion of the Savior. Your car will break down this week. I don't know that for sure. And you'll be tempted to worry. You'll go through a difficult time with someone in your family and you'll wonder if you have the resources to deal with it. An unforeseen tragedy might strike. And you'll ask why. And you might wonder, does God love me? Is He caring for me? And the answer to that question, as we've seen here, and what disciples, that's us, need to remember every week, every day, every moment, we need to remember He loves us. He's compassionate. And He's powerful. And all is well as we rest in His secure and loving arms. So Jesus says to us, Do you not understand? He has cared for us. Don't forget all the ways He's cared for you. And maybe one of the ways you can apply what we're talking about today is to talk with someone, maybe after service, maybe with your family around the lunch table, is just to remember. Remember one of Jesus' rebuking questions was, do you not remember? Well, what if you just sat around and remembered how kind God has been to you and encouraged each other with the track record of the faithfulness of God? I think you'd be encouraged and we'd build each other up. Look afresh at the Savior this morning. Look afresh at His compassion and His power. Do not see without seeing, hear without hearing. Don't let this be another time that you accumulate more information, and yet this message of Christ's love and compassion does not touch your heart. Let's pray. We worship you, Lord Jesus, for your compassion and your power. We thank you for demonstrating it in this text. We praise you. We are secure. And Lord, we ask that you would remind us afresh of these things, that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to hear and receive these glorious truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name.